Good morning, church. He is risen. The reading today is from Acts chapter 2, verse 22 to 36. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and for knowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be stricken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb was with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of this we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received the, from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The word of God for the people of God. Well, good morning. morning. Hope that y'all are doing well. My name is Marco. I serve as the preaching and teaching pastor here at Storehouse McAllen. It is a joy to be with you here on Easter Sunday. Uh, In the event that you didn't catch Gary, we're going to find ourselves in Acts chapter 2. We're looking at verses 22 to 36. As you open or load your Bible, two quick updates for you. Uh, We love God's Word. We love preaching from God's Word. Therefore, we love to gift God's Word. So if you do not have a Bible, let us hook you up. That is our gift to you. In addition to that, there are these Connect cards, not just because it's Easter Sunday, but because we genuinely want to hang out with you or have the opportunity to pray for you. Fill one out and you can take it to the back Connect desk. Those are all the updates I have for you this morning. Well, today we get to celebrate the resurrection of King Jesus. No one has been more influential in the history of the world. No one has had more books written about him, nor has there been anyone to walk this life as a sinless and suffering servant. 
God entered into human history as the man Jesus Christ. That is, God in the flesh made in our likeness and lived the life that we cannot live. That is, living among us, facing temptation like us and suffering for us, yet was without sin. Jesus died the death that we deserve bearing the penalty for sin that loomed over our head. And then three days later, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus was raised from the dead, conquering sin, hell, Satan, and demons. As a result, as if I'm done, as a result, he not only rules victoriously, but by his grace and by the same spirit that raised him from the dead, sinners are saved and raised from spiritual death to spiritual life for all eternity. And for now, as he continues to work, we worship King Jesus as we await his return to claim his bride, the church. That is what we are talking about this morning. As a result, here's my question to you. Here's my question to you. Who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? This is a profound question, one that Jesus himself asked his disciples. In Matthew 16, Jesus is hanging out with them under a tree because that's what you did. And he goes on to ask the disciples, who do people say that I am? And his disciples respond by saying, some think you're a prophet incarnate. Some people think you're Elijah. Some people think you're Jeremiah. And he says, okay, cool, get it who do you say that I am? And Peter, the loving disciple that many of us uh, can relate to, goes on to say, you are the Christ. This question that is not only posed for the disciples is one that is posed for you this morning. And it is of great significance whether, check it, whether you know Jesus or don't. It is of great significance to you because it defines who you are, what you believe, and what you do. In other words, the way in which you live. It is a great question of much significance. And as we consider our text this morning, the purpose of our time is not simply looking at the Word of God and seeing a compelling argument, but conviction from God through His Word for the truth of God has been revealed in His Word. Not in me, but in His Word. And so here's what I want you to walk away with this morning. Here's what I hope that you walk away with this morning. The knowledge and revelation of Jesus through his word either unites us in worship or exposes our rebellion to him. The knowledge and revelation of Jesus through his word either unites us in worship or exposes our rebellion to him. We have a lot of ground to cover. Let me pray and we'll dig into our time. Almighty God, we praise you. We adore you. We worship you. 
We give you humble, we give you weary, and we give you thankful hearts for the Lord Jesus. And though our thanksgiving is not enough, it is what we have. May you receive our hearts this morning as we examine your word. May you, by your spirit, convince and challenge our heart, our will, and our mind. May your word be sweeter than the taste of honey. We ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. Well, before we dig into the specific verses that we're looking at, let me provide you with a little bit of context surrounding Acts 2. Uh, this is, takes place not too long after the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. By the time we get to Acts 2, he had already revealed himself to the disciples, to his friends, and a multitude of people. Later, Jesus ascends back into heaven, and it was at this time that he said he would send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit would descend among his people, descend among the disciples, enabling them and empowering them to take the gospel everywhere. And here in Acts 2, the apostle Peter delivers the first Christocentric sermon. And in the first half of his sermon, he speaks of uh, the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, by taking the people who are in attendance back to the Old Testament and quotes the prophet Joel. And as he does that, he swings back to the present reality of where they find themselves by delivering a personal and potent message toward the Jewish people and everyone else in attendance. You can tell that, pre that, that Peter was a preacher because if you skip ahead to verse 40, uh, it says, and with many other words. So Peter preaches, and then in verse 37, they actually interrupt his sermon, and then he keeps going. So being long-winded as a preacher is biblical. <laughs> Peter begins. Look at verse 22. For the most part, we're going to look at verse by verse. Peter begins, men of Israel, hear these words. I want to park there just for a moment. This is Peter, the one who denied Jesus just a couple of weeks before. The one who tried rebuking Jesus. The one who walked on water more than you and I have ever done, took his eyes off of Jesus, and then started drowning. This is that same Peter. And as he begins this portion of his sermon, notice the way he addresses the community. He speaks to them boldly and with confidence. He's not interested in tickling their ears. He's not addressing felt needs. Rather, he is going to speak to them concerning the Lord Jesus. This is important because you and I are products of what we listen to. And God, through Peter, isn't wasting any time in getting to the point of what we need to hear. So Peter continues. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. One of the disciples early on went on to say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? To you and I, Peter 
reveals the historical Jesus. And that's one of the things that we're going to talk about. We're actually going to look at five things in this sermon that Peter exposes about Jesus, this being the first one, that he reveals the historical Jesus. That is, that Jesus actually and factually existed. Whether you know him or not, Jesus of Nazareth actually existed. It has been confirmed most definitely through the word of God, but if you consider extra biblical material, it has been confirmed over centuries through scholars and historians. But the point of Jesus, or the point of Peter revealing this historical Jesus is that Peter is putting Jesus on the table so that no one can claim ignorance, particularly those who are listening to Peter, because he continues. This Jesus attested to you by God. The word attested means to be openly revealed, to have conclusive evidence, to be publicly known. And so as Peter continues by saying attested by God, it means that God, through the life of Jesus, has shown them, the people Peter is preaching to, has shown them that Jesus was who he claimed to be. You might ask, well, how did Jesus do that? Peter gives us three things, mighty works, wonders, and signs. Mighty works refers to the miracles that Jesus performed and the power of those miracles. Wonders refers to the effect that those miracles had or when people were in awe of what Jesus was not only claiming, but of what Jesus was doing. He goes on to say signs. This is the truth that was revealed about God in Jesus as he performed those works. The purpose of these works was to provide a clear declaration that Jesus had come from God. That Jesus is God in the flesh. That Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. That Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Peter closes this first verse by saying that he, God did all these things through him in your mists as you yourselves know. In other words, here's what Peter is saying to the, to the Jewish people that he's preaching to and those in attendance. He's saying, you know exactly who I'm talking about. You cannot claim ignorance about who I'm talking about. That is why, G that is why Peter puts Jesus in his lordship on the table. The first thing that Peter does, and in turn that the Holy Spirit shows you and I, is that what is central to the gospel and the Christian faith is the historical Jesus. Our faith is rooted in history. Our faith is rooted in the history of Jesus. Our faith is rooted in the history of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That is why we can claim we believe in the historical Jesus, the revelation of Jesus. Next, we believe in the crucified Jesus. 
Jesus. This is verse 23. Peter continues to drive his point even further by providing and expanding upon the event that had, cur- that had occurred not too long ago, and that is the crucifixion, the death of Jesus and the manner in which he was killed. And Peter beautifully accounts this by laying out both the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility. So let's look at these two things. We're going to focus on these two things by looking at two words, delivered and killed. Sounds so grim, but that's the point. Let's look at these. Verse 23, this Jesus, so this historical Jesus, the revelation of this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter goes on to say that Jesus was delivered, that is, that he was given up to be arrested, to be beaten, to be crucified, and ultimately murdered on the cross. Here's what Peter is saying within that. The cross, the crucifixion, was not an afterthought. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't God scrambling to try to figure out how he was going to bring salvation to humankind. It was the plan. It was the definite plan, meaning that this was worked out in eternity past by the Holy Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It wasn't as if two members of the Trinity had this secret meeting and Jesus was in the waiting room looking to see what kind of a decision they were going to make. The Trinity was involved in the making of this plan and in particular as it was carried out. The author of Hebrews in chapter 12 goes on to say that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. Jesus willingly endured the cross. And this plan didn't just take place at that moment. It took place in eternity past, prophesied by God in Genesis 3. Prophets prophesied this throughout the entire Old Testament. Jesus, on several occasions, tells his disciples, I am going to be delivered up. I'm going to be arrested and killed. And the disciples are saying, that's cool, bro. Who do you think is better? Jesus willingly endured the cross which is why the Apostle Paul, actually, let me pause. I've got more to say. Jesus willingly endured the cross. That is why we can look to Isaiah 53. Isaiah wrote this more than 700 years before the coming of Christ, saying this, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace And with his wounds, we are healed. The crucifixion was a prophecy being fulfilled. Peter adds to this definite plan by saying that this was according to the foreknowledge of God. This does not mean that God looked down the corridor of time, saw what would happen, and then he reacts to what is happening. Rather, what he means is that this was ordained. This was what was going to happen, that the Son, the second member of the Trinity, would be our Redeemer. 
That is why the Apostle Paul, if you were here for our Good Friday service, that is why Paul can say what he says in Romans 5, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God shows his love for us in that while we were still, that's present tense, still sinners, Christ died for us. If the standard of our life is to be perfect, but only God is perfect, then it is only God who can carry out a sinless life, and it is only God who can actually address the issue of our life, which is sin. And that puts a little bit of pressure on us, and you might even ask, well, what is our hope then? Jesus is that hope. And yet in all of this, as we briefly look at the sovereignty of God, in all of this, Peter continues to expand on what is the depravity of our hearts by addressing their personal responsibility. He goes on to say, you crucified and killed him by the hands of of lawless men. When he says you, he's talking to the religious leaders who are in attendance. When he's talking about the lawless men, he's talking about the Roman government that carried out Jesus' execution because they had the power to carry out capital punishment. And here's the, the big deal. Here's the big deal about the religious leaders and who Peter is talking to. These are the religious leaders who went to Sunday school, who memorized books of the Old Testament, had an established concept of the coming of the Messiah Messiah listened to the sermons of Jesus and saw him perform these mighty works, and yet in that they rejected him. They rejected the truth that he preached. The Apostle John said it this way this is not on the notes. He says, And this is the judgment the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. It's easy to look at this and have hindsight and be like, right, yeah, it was the Jews that did it, right? But technically, it was maybe the, the Roman government, because they're the ones that carried it out. You know, if Jesus would hear, not only would I have proof that Jesus is Lord, but I wouldn't have done it that way, or we probably wouldn't have done it that way. But the truth is, we would have done far worse should he be here and posted it on social media with clever hashtags. We would have done far worse. Like the religious leaders of the day, we would have believed that he deserved to be killed. We just use fancy words like canceled. At the crucifixion, it seemed as though all hope was lost. The disciples, the ones that walked with him for three years, were scattered, confused, and afraid. Everyone thought that the religious leaders were right. The tomb that Jesus' body lay in confirmed the fear. And that is the tension that we experience between what we call Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. 
Nonetheless, we believe in the crucified Christ. In verse 24, in a time where the earth went silent, Saturday had happened. For us in our time, that would have been yesterday. We call it Holy Saturday. Fear had spread. Everybody's tripping out. And much like we would have been, we would have forgotten the words of God in Genesis 50. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. You see, when the religious leaders and the Roman government thought that they had put an end to what they thought were blasphemous claims and the disciples' hope was absolutely shattered because they thought Jesus would rule and reign from a political perspective, Peter goes on to say here, God raised him up. Jesus was risen from the dead. I want to say that one more time. Just hear me out. Jesus was risen from the dead. Peter does not mean Jesus was resuscitated. In other words, his lungs were massaged so that oxygen would flow in his body. He wasn't resuscitated. uh, Peter isn't saying that he was uh, revived in the sense that he got a new sense of renewal. He was resurrected. Through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, Jesus' heart began to beat once more. Blood coursed through his veins, whole in his hands and in his feet. Jesus stood and walked out of that grave. And when you see the two eyewitnesses, the two ladies that come running to the tomb and the angel is hanging out saying, why are you here? He is risen. The purpose of the tomb being opened was for their sake, not Jesus' sake. He is risen. Death could not hold him because the power of God is greater than death and sin and Satan. It was impossible for death to hold him. This is the beauty, the beautiful good news of the gospel. That though we were all once spiritually dead in our sin, God raised us out of spiritual death and brought us into spiritual life because death has no power over him. Death for the Christian is nothing but a servant. Death is nothing but a vehicle into glory. And that changes everything about the way in which we live today. As a good preacher, Peter unpacks this uh, verse 24 by jumping into verses 25 and 28. Shows that he's a good student of the Bible because a a good preacher takes people back to cross-references. And so in this uh, text, Peter takes us back to Psalm 16. This is verses 25 to 28. And in Psalm 16, or as Peter goes back to Psalm 16, he is showing those who are there in attendance the three things. The first thing that he wants to show them is that he's going to distill the truth that Psalm 16 has. In other words, he's going to 
pull out as much truth as he can to present them with their reality, right? We would call this, the fancy $5 word for this would be called exegesis. He is pulling out as much truth as he can so that he can deliver it to them. And so the first thing he does as he takes us back to Psalm 16 is that he references King David. The Jewish people loved King David. They were all about King David. What Arnold Schwarzenegger was to us in Predator, King David is to them, okay? So you get the significance of, of, uh, of King David to the Jewish people. And so what Peter does is that he shows them that David was writing about and who David was writing about and who David was pointing them to. So let's go to verse 25. He goes on to say, for David says concerning him, that is Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me. So when you go back to Psalm 16 and you read that verse, what David is saying is, I am looking ahead to the Lord. He is the one that has sustained me. He is the one that is sustaining me. David continues, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken, that God is his foundation." And as a result of God, there's that question, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say God is that defines who you are and how you live? David says, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Well, how does that shape how he lives? My heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. That is how it shaped how he lived. Verse 27, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, that is the realm of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. When you circle the Holy One, he is referring to the one who was coming, to the Messiah who had been foretold. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make full of gladness with your presence. David is looking ahead to the coming of the Messiah the resurrection of the Messiah, and the resurrection of the dead. So the first thing Peter wants him to see is, hey, look at Psalm 16. David wasn't just being creative in his writing. David is actually prophesying about the one who would come. So that's the first thing. The second thing we see that, that Peter does is he shows us that the prophecy has been fulfilled. Look at verse 29. Brothers, I say to you with confidence. Again, Peter's confidence is in the word and work of Christ. He's not interested in tickling their ears. He's not interested in addressing felt needs. He's not interested in providing his opinion. Instead, he wants to take them to the clear teachings of Scripture. And so he continues. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, right? So he's like, I want to talk to you about your Arnold Schwarzenegger, he, right? That he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. What, what Peter is ultimately saying is, as you look to David, I hate to break it to you, but he wasn't your guy. He wasn't your guy because he died. He was buried and he's still dead. That's ultimately is, is both 
his argument while at the same time saying this Jesus that we just finished talking about, the historical Jesus, the crucified Jesus, this risen Jesus has fulfilled this prophecy. David wasn't your guy and David knew that. Verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants, you can circle that, he's talking about Jesus, on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades. So Peter tells him, hey, God has raised Jesus from the dead. We can see that this was foretold almost a thousand years before this happened through King David. Let me teach you the application of that truth. Uh, David was talking about Jesus. David, as a result, is not your guy because he's still dead. And that's Peter's entire argument that David was talking about the resurrection and that he couldn't be their guy, but Jesus is. And he concludes this section by saying, and as a result of this, we, the disciples, we, now the apostles, are eyewitnesses to this account. Eyewitnesses. Now, what happened a day ago or a couple of weeks prior to Peter preaching this, these were all the dudes that were scared. They were hiding because they feared persecution. They thought they, they betted on the wrong guy. What ended up happening? Because when we come to Acts 2, and for that matter, the entire book of Acts, these dudes are like roaring lions preaching the gospel. What happened? They were transformed by the Spirit. And every single one of them, with the exception of one, was martyred. It is said that a man will live for a lie, but he will not die for one. These men gave themselves to Jesus and the message of the gospel, and people have been coming to know Jesus ever since. If you think well, the gospel doesn't make sense, that's kind of the point. It is an extraordinary work of God in the hearts of ordinary people. I mean, think about it. What, do you think the disciples were in the upper room like, okay, check it, right? Hell is hot and forever is a long time. So what we should do, think about it. Let me bust out the whiteboard, Peter. Hold on. Let me tell you, what if we told people to have faith in Jesus and all they needed to do was proclaim him as Lord and surrender to his lordship and then he would redeem them and we re would renew them, right? And then Andrew was like, well, how would you do that? Bro, his death, we'll just preach his death and then people will come to know Jesus because he died for their sins on their behalf. That's the plan of salvation. You're like, what well, doesn't make sense? Exactly. It's an extraordinary work of God in the hearts of ordinary people. And the whole point that Peter is getting at in this last half of his sermon is that the reason the clocks or the reason the wheels are starting to turn is because God has poured out his spirit into you. The reason we're able to preach these sermons, right? Peter is ultimately saying the reason we're able to do this is because God has renewed our hearts. It sounds crazy. Even Paul talks about it to the, uh, to the church in Corinthians. He says, if Christ has not been raised, 
your faith is futile and you are still dead in your sin. If Jesus has not been raised, then we're either liars or fools. And yet apart from the historical revelation of Jesus, the crucifixion and His resurrection, some would say, what more? I need more. Here's the fruit of the resurrection. The church. The church is the fruit of the resurrection. In the context of the Old Testament, you may have even seen this in movies, like war movies, when when one army or one kingdom or one country battles another and then wins, you might hear, what are the spoils of war, right? That is when they go in and they take things, they're gold, silver, they take paintings and all these things, right? Jesus went to war on our behalf and conquered sin and hell and demons and Satan. And you would ask, well, what are the spoils of war? The church is his spoils of war. We belong to him. We are his prized possession. And you say, well, the church is weird and the church is inconsistent. Like, yes, we are weird and we are inconsistent, but Jesus isn't. That is why the church points to him. We are still growing. We are still being sanctified. And you know what? The church regularly sins against one another. So don't act surprised when you're sinned against. And don't act surprised when you sin against someone else. Rather, walk in the newness of life. The church is the fruit of the resurrection. The church is the spoils of war. We believe in the resurrected Jesus. Fourth, we believe in the exalted Jesus. Right? Peter just keeps driving, like, no deja, right? Like, he keeps driving these points as he has boldly and passionately and beautifully walked them through the historical revelation of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the, the resurrection of Jesus. He now comes to the exaltation of Jesus. This is verse 33. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from father from the father the promise of the holy spirit he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing when peter talks about the exaltation of jesus he's talking about jesus's ascension back into heaven the bible speaks uh, very minimally about the ascension but the ascension is a monumental event that has significant depth to the christian faith You see, in the ascension, Jesus had to go back to heaven. And I want to provide you three reasons as to why. The first one, we'll go through these quickly. The first reason as to why Jesus had to ascend back into heaven, it was so that he would rule and reign over all. It's like his coronation. Have you ever watched the show, The Crown? Right? When Queen Elizabeth like, is crowned queen, right? everybody's talking big about her coronation, and all these people are like watching and looking, and it's essentially acknowledging her sovereign rule. It's acknowledging her authority. It's acknowledging that she's going to reign as queen. Right? Jesus ascending back into heaven is him ruling and reigning over all. That is why he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Reason number two, he goes back to heaven. Just because he goes back to heaven doesn't mean he is not working. Throughout the Gospels, he tells the disciples, where I go, you can't go yet, but I'm preparing a room for you. He's still at work. 
He's not done. The third reason, as he's doing those things, one of the things that he promised the disciples was, I have to go so that I would send the Holy Spirit. So that the Holy Spirit would descend upon you. If he did not, he would not have come. John 16 says it this way. This is Jesus talking to the disciples. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And so he's referring to, I got to go back. And as I do, I'm not done. In fact, the Holy Spirit's going to descend. Renewing, empowering, and enabling my people. Those are three quick reasons to the significance of the ascension. See, Jesus isn't the hero who sacrificed himself to save a people um, and then is meant to be remembered through the history of statues. Jesus is the Savior who lived, died, was buried, and resurrected for sinners and sufferers like you and me. And he lives. He is alive and he is well. Heroes are remembered, but Jesus reigns. We believe in the exalted Jesus. Fifth and finally, this is verses 34 to 36, we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. Peter kind of wraps it up. He says, for David, he goes back to David. David did not ascend into the heavens, so he's still pushing that argument. David's not your guy. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David foresaw that all would bow, all would be subject to the Lord, not to David, but to the Lord. And the word footstool, it's imagery to represent domination, that he would be Lord over all. Peter's point here is that through Jesus' finished work, through his resurrection, through his ascension, Jesus is Lord over all. And though we killed him, it is God who has the last word. Jesus is either Lord through our confession in this life or in the end through subjection. You might say, well, how is that loving? That doesn't sound like a very loving point. How is he loving? He doesn't, God doesn't leave sinners in their sin, but has provided a way for the promise of new life, forgiveness of sin, and eternity with him through Jesus. So that anyone can cry out, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We believe in the Lord Jesus. We believe in the historical revelation of Jesus. We believe in the crucified Jesus. We believe in the resurrected Jesus. We believe in the exaltation of Jesus. And we believe in the Lord Jesus. Who you say Jesus is, whether you know him or not, determines who you are, how you live, and what you do.
Earlier this week, I read an author's quote, kind of on the resurrection, and they went on to say, this isn't up on the notes, we're kind of closing this out, and so he goes on to say, my faith shifted considerably for the better when I stopped believing Jesus came to die for our sin and instead accepted Jesus and, ex- and instead accepted Jesus came to show us how to live together. And one more time, very briefly. My faith shifted considerably for the better when I stopped believing Jesus came to die for our sin and instead accepted Jesus came to show us how to live together. No one likes to talk about sin, much less their own personal sin. And though you may not like that word, each one of us manifests it in our life. It is, that the, it is part of the foundation of our frailty. No one likes to talk about sin, much less their personal sin, or what God has to say about sin. Rather, people really enjoy personalizing their Jesus. In this author's assessment, they reduce Jesus's life in ministry to love through morality. But that's not why Jesus came. That is not why Jesus came. Jesus himself says that he came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to save sinners through his life, death, and resurrection. Therefore, let us be honest about the condition of our hearts and the affections that uh, tempt us to draw away from Jesus and engage them sincerely. For the beauty of the gospel is that neither death nor you will have the last word, but Jesus will. And so for the Christian... Jesus is alive and has purchased you out of your bondage to sin. Through the Holy Spirit, not only has he conquered sin, not only has he forgiven you of sin, but has given you the power over sin through the Holy Spirit. Death no longer holds you, and that changes everything about the way in which you live today. And so come before the Lord Jesus by his grace. The same grace that has saved you is the same grace that draws you near to him. And if you have forgotten the beauty of this truth, I invite you to repent and fix your eyes upon Jesus. For the one who does not know Jesus, thank you so much for hanging out with us this morning. But for the one who does not know Jesus, you are dead in your sin. you do not have eternal life. But it doesn't have to end there. And I'm not here to tickle your ears. I'm not here to address felt needs. But I am here to point you to the person and work of Jesus who is ready, willing to pardon all who turn to him in faith and repentance. And you might have questions that I don't have answers to, but I know the one who does. Put your trust, your hope, surrender your life to the Lord Jesus. Repent of your sin and come before him. 
Who you say Jesus is determines who you are, what you believe, and what you do. Let's pray. Almighty God, in Jesus Christ, you came among us as light shining in darkness. We confess that we have not welcomed the light or trusted your good news to be good. We are guilty of closing our eyes to glory in our midst, expecting little and hoping for less. Almighty God, would you forgive our doubt and renew our hope so that we may receive and experience the fullness of your grace and live in the truth of Jesus, our good God and Savior. May the meditation of our heart And may the words of our mouth be pleasing to you today. Amen.